Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Abigail DeKosnick and Keith Feldman, who are editors of a fascinating new book, Hashtag Identity, Hashtagging Race, Gender, Sexuality, and Nation. This book was published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press and is a fascinating compilation of a number of different perspectives of our understanding of the idea of identity as it connects to Twitter, activism, and a variety of different forms of identity and where those things intersect and also how they reach globally. But I'm going to let Gail and Keith tell us a little bit about that. First, I'd like to introduce Keith Feldman and Gail DeKosnick to the New Books Network and ask them each to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this really interesting project. Great. Well, my name is Abigail DeKosnick. Um, please call me Gail. And uh, what happened to bring this project about is that I was talking to one of my graduate students. I'm a faculty member at UC Berkeley. And I was talking to my graduate student, Paige Johnson, uh, who was then a PhD in performance studies and is now an assistant professor at Barnard. And Paige and I were just throwing around ideas about what's going on with new media studies. And we asked each other, is the color of new media studies white? In other words, so much of what we were reading about digital technology and social media seem to focus on these great white inventors like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. And we just wanted to know where's the rest of the scholarly literature? Where are, where's all the scholarship on women, on queer people, on people of color, on people outside of North America? And on a whim, we started a working group. We convened a meeting and announced it to the arts and humanities and social science parts of UC Berkeley and said, let's call this working group the color of new media. Uh, Let's investigate scholarship that asks questions about diversity and inclusivity and new media studies. And maybe we can also produce scholarship about those things. And at the first meeting, another faculty member, Keith Feldman, showed up and I immediately asked him to be my co-faculty organizer of the working group and Keith agreed. And so we just started meeting once a month as a working group and um, I'll let Keith introduce himself right now and then maybe we can both talk about how the book came about. Yeah, so great. Uh, and thanks so much, Lily, for uh, for hosting this. Uh, so I'm Keith Feldman. I'm an uh, associate professor uh, in the Department of Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley. And uh, around about uh, 2010, 2011, I started um, doing some work kind of as a, as a cultural historian uh, uh, and a, a historian of race around the ways in which race was getting sort of worked and reworked in the context of the war on terror and the ways in which um, sort of contemporary media technologies were being kind of used as platforms for thinking and rethinking about um, uh, sort of the operations of race in the, in the wider context of the, the national security state. Uh, I was doing it, uh, doing this work pretty much in my own little bubble, 
uh, when all of a sudden I heard of the Color of New Media Working Group uh, coming on board. Um, and I jumped at the opportunity to go to this meeting. Uh, and the kind of the diversity of views, uh, disciplinary backgrounds, uh, areas of interest, uh, all really kind of uh, sparked my curiosity and really expanded the the scope of my own uh, my own research interests. Uh, so yeah, so we uh, met uh, and almost immediately started thinking about what kind of work could we produce? What 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 kind of work about uh, new media studies could we create and get into the world? Uh, in uh, at a moment, you know, this was probably five years ago when it was hard to find kind of uh, work in new media studies that took kind of uh, axes of social difference quite seriously. And this book, which is really interesting in bringing those different axes together and looking at them in different perspectives, um, I, I would love for you both to talk a little bit about um, you know, the, the sort of way that you thought about this project as it came together um, with its, you know, sort of title of hashtag identity, but also the distinction we have in terms of race, gender, sexuality, and nation. Yeah, great. Um, I, uh, I just want to say quickly that um, I'm a faculty member, I'm an associate professor in two places in the Berkeley Center for New Media and the Department of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies. Um, Keith is a, an associate professor in ethnic studies, and our students, our graduate students who participate in the working group, are from many more departments than the three units that Keith and I represent. So we attracted graduate students from our departments of ethnic studies, performance studies, new media, but also film, also rhetoric, uh, comparative literature, uh, gender and women's studies, African-American studies. Asian American studies, um, we just started to have conversations that were very highly cross-disciplinary and ranged so far and wide. And what each of us were thinking about Twitter especially and social media more generally from all of our different backgrounds. And in our first couple of years, it just seemed like every working group meeting, somebody was bringing up a hashtag of the month. Um, Black Lives Matter was just getting started at the time that our working group got started. So we talked about that a lot and all of the different social media and in-person movements that uh, were part of Black Lives Matter and still are. And um, there was also a lot around popular culture, a lot around politics a lot around how gender was being negotiated and performed online. And at a certain point, we just thought, we, I, I actually really remember this conversation uh, where we just decided, you know what, Twitter's probably going away really soon. Um, all social media platforms come to an end. Uh, you know, MySpace ended, Friendster ended, and Twitter's probably going down in a, in a year or so, we said in like 2015. And so we, we sort of decided collectively to write what we thought would be Twitter's obituary, 
we thought we would write a book about all the hashtags we had discussed, and then maybe it would live as a kind of archive of this funny, idiosyncratic, um, short-lived social media site uh, that people used in the 2010s. Um, of course, that's not what happened to Twitter. Twitter didn't go, uh, didn't die a quiet death. Um, instead, the 2016 election happened and Twitter is more active than ever before. So we ended up creating a book that isn't um, an homage to a dead platform, but is instead, uh, I think, lives as a kind of record of an important first you know, five years of Twitter as one of the most active political sites in the country and in the world. Um, Keith? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that this book isn't overtly about, of course, is it's not about, uh, it's not about the rise of Donald Trump. It's not about um, sort of large scale institutions and organizations um, utilizing Twitter as a platform. It's not about um, bots um, and so many of the sort of the, the permutations of uh, sort of very contemporary current debates about uh, the place of Twitter uh, in the broader kind of pol U.S. political culture. It is a kind of um, kind of a counter memory uh, to uh, to th that that prefigures uh, Twitter as as a, a platform for presidential proclamation, uh, and in that way, I mean, one of the great um, insights that that I that I got out of uh, so many of our contributors' work is it's kind of the ways in which um, uh, local embodied uh, networked forms of uh, kind of creative social movement seized on Twitter and utilized it uh, and innovated through it different uh, kind of forms of social justice activism, forms of identity construction and circulation. Uh, and uh, in the process, you know, uh, Twitter was being marshaled as a, and, and hashtagging perhaps more generally was being marshaled as a way to cohere uh, and articulate forms of identity, uh, often minoritarian forms of identity in the face of things like uh, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, uh, et cetera. And so there's, there's kind of a, a through line in the book that's tracing the, the sort of the operations of minoritarian difference as they're getting worked out and performed on Twitter. And and that was part of what I, I was really interested in and in, in reading through your book. Um, I did enjoy the part in the introduction where you talk about the, the thinking that this was going to be kind of an obituary for Twitter. Um, and, and, and yet it turned out not to be so. Um, but I would love to sort of take you through, if it's all right with both of you, the sections of the book, because there are four parts that are sort of focusing on different aspects of our understanding of how particularly Twitter and hashtag 
um, hashtagging is used. And then the final section, which is more conclusive, conclusive and forward looking um, notes from the color of new media. Um, but if you could just go through and talk a little bit about what's part of each section, part one, black Twitter futures, part two, mediated intersections, part three, disavowals, which I was really, really interested in, in my um, sort of academic interests in political science. Um, part four, Twitter International, which I also followed quite closely in following some of the green revolution in Iran and so forth. Um, so can I ask you to each of you um, to talk a little bit about each section of the book and what uh, your authors are doing in those sections and what their sort of analyses are and how they fit together. Yeah, absolutely. Keith, do you have, uh, would you like to take, we could alternate. Do you want to take part one or would you like me to take part one? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Why don't, why don't I take part one and then Gail, you can take part two uh, and we can go from there. Yeah, so uh, so part one is uh, called Black Twitter Futures, uh, and you know, as as Gail mentioned, the book project uh, really uh, began to come together in the context of the hashtag Black Lives Matter uh, as a as a way of uh, organizing political community, of rallying people to particular actions, of bringing uh, attention uh, to the uh, to the spate of um, the deaths of uh, black men and women at the at the hands of the state, uh, and you know one of the things that this uh, that this part really hones in on is the ways in which uh, you know hashtag Black Lives Matter is kind of one kind of large scale um, hashtag that we can think about. And there are sort of numerous other ways in which uh, social media in general, Twitter in particular, and, and forms of hashtagging uh, have been used um, uh, to contest uh, kind of different forms of, of anti-Black race, racist violence and um, gender violence. So the uh, the part the section opens uh, with uh, Malaika Imhotep's chapter on uh, on this amazing uh, hashtag called On Fleek, this uh, expression that comes from uh, a platform that did have its kind of beginning and end called Vine. Uh, and here, uh, Imhotep, who's a, a, a PhD student in African American studies. Uh, at Berkeley really hones in on how this kind of ephemeral moment of uh, a young woman, Kayla Newman's um, uh, self-expression of, of joy uh, gets captured uh, on Vine and then circulates super widely. You know, um, on fleek gets taken up uh, all over uh, the internet and also all over kind of uh, corporate American culture. Uh, and Imhotep does uh, this really quite uh, lovely uh, kind of uh, performative analysis 
of how the value of black performance uh, is both you know, captured uh, in these various moments, but then also exceeds uh, those forms of capture. Uh, Paige Johnson, uh, a co-founder of the, of the working group, uh, in the next chapter uh, addresses uh, street harassment and online harassment uh, by looking at the hashtag UOCasis and sees sort of how uh, uh, that particular hashtag gets used uh, by African-American cis and trans women uh, to uh, express forms of solidarity and to, um, to develop what she calls a technocultural assemblage to document violence in various kinds of ways. Uh, uh, the next chapter is by uh, Amina Norris and Nalia Rodriguez, um, who are looking at the uh, social media work that happens in the aftermath of the death of Sandra Bland, whose, um, whose death is now actually quite, uh, quite recently in the news again. Uh, and Norris and Rodriguez are looking at how, um, uh, how different platforms and different different engagements with uh, the, the movement to hashtag say her name get taken up in, in different ways, right? So that uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, are actually, uh, what they see is that Facebook and Twitter actually take up rather distinct uh, engagements uh, with uh, thinking through what, uh, what say her name means. Uh, Grace Gibson uh, focuses her chapter on the hashtag Afrofuturism, uh, and uh, what Grace does in this is, in this chapter is uh, uh, does this really remarkable work to think about how um, how online communities and real life communities are are getting brought together around this particular hashtag. So to think about how the kind of consolidation of Afrofuturism as a field of scholarly interest and pedagogy uh, uh, gets worked out in various kinds of ways, including at, at things like um, academic conferences, uh, community activists who are building um, tech-rich community centers, uh, uh, the sharing of syllabi and scholarly resources, etc. Uh, and then the chapter uh, closes with a conversation that we had uh, in the working group with Reverend uh, Osagiefo Seku, uh, who came in the fall of 2015. Uh, Rev. Seku uh, does has a really wonderful um, uh, and important background in. Uh, organizing and activism uh, on the ground, particularly uh, in Ferguson. Uh, uh, and he helps us think, I think, really carefully about uh, what, what uh, something like the, the hashtag Black Lives Matter enables, right? And one of the key things that it enables is the materialization of politics, of getting bodies in places, in communities. Uh, and at a time when uh, so much uh, political work seems uh, diffuse, 
uh, and disconnected, especially in the sort of the contemporary neoliberal context. Uh, Reverend Seku has us think really carefully about uh, what it means to have bodies in place, that that's actually quite crucial to the kind of networking uh, potential that something like a, a hashtag brings to bear. Great. Um, Gail, if you want to take us through the second part, mediated intersections, that would be fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. So part two, mediated intersections, uh, has four great essays in it that all look at uh, how media, um, how hashtags act as their own kind of media, their own media format that brings to consciousness and sometimes brings into, into collective action um, minoritized groups of people. So the first essay in that section is by Lindsay Ogle, and it's, that essay is called Confused Cats and Post-Feminist Performance. And Lindsay takes on this really tangled set of performances by women online, some of whom identify as feminists and others who identify as not feminist at all. And sometimes that group of women who disidentify with feminism are called post-feminists, which is in itself a confusing term. And then many so-called post-feminists are called confused by feminists uh, because feminists say women who claim they're not feminists don't know what feminism means. They're just confused. And then Lindsay takes up the figure of um, some guy on Tumblr, um, somebody who started posting under this tag confused cats and was really posting about the sort of battle between feminists and post-feminists and sort of rendered that, that um, conflict as a confused cat fight, like as if all women are cat fighting and then they're confused about it. So he'd sort of post pictures of cats and then allude to these um, different hashtags that women on both sides of the feminism debate were using. And Lindsay uh, is able to unpack that confusion and notes that a lot of women who very deliberately and um, intentionally proclaim themselves post-feminists on Twitter are actually using a lot of feminist discursive moves. Like they're using autobiography, they're talking about self-empowerment, um, they're declaiming their own uniqueness, their own individuality. Uh, and, you know, these are, these are feminist tactics. Um, and she also is able to note how easily these perceived conflicts between women are taken up by misogynists um, as almost proof that women can't get it together. They can't find solidarity. They'll always be confused, you know. So uh, it's a really interesting essay that reaches into a part of uh, the way that women struggle with their own political identities and with one another's political identities online. Uh, the next essay in that section is called Hashtag Why I Stayed, and it's by Julia Havard. And the hashtag campaign Why I Stayed was founded by survivors of partner violence, of domestic violence. 
And it was that hashtag was populated by many, many survivors of partner violence and uh, most of them women. And what Julia is able to get to in that essay is to really dwell and linger on these, this very different tonality that um, characterized all the hashtags or all of the posts in this hashtag, why I stayed because those uh, survivors autobiographical statements in why I stayed were about inaction. They were about staying still. They were about stasis and remaining in a threatening, violent, and potentially lethal domestic situation. And Julia writes this very poetic um, examination of the power of just reflecting on one's own stasis, one's own inability to move. And she makes this uh, great case, these, these great set of arguments about how staying in situations of domestic violence is often about um, intractable obstacles, lacking financial resources, not having family to turn to, feeling like you're responsible for saving the one that you love, um, saving them from themselves, uh, being the victim so that you can make them better. And then on the other hand, that the stories in Why I Stayed also were about preparing to leave. They were about the moment before or the, or the moments, the days, months, years before a survivor is ready to exit the situation. So sometimes staying is not just about immobility. It's also about preparation. It's also about finding resolve. It's also about amassing resources. So uh, I find that to be a really moving and powerful essay that uh, looks at a different kind of hashtag activism that doesn't look like activism to a lot of people, but really can be very powerful. The next essay in that section by Jose Ramon Lizarraga and Arturo Cortez is called Hashtag Gentrification. And that is a great essay on the drag performer Persia, who is a Latinx San Francisco performer. And Persia uh, wrote a song called Google Google Apps Apps and directed and produced and performed in a tremendous, hilarious video for the song, Google, Google apps, apps that anyone can find on YouTube. That is a parody and critique of the tech industry taking over San Francisco and the gentrification of San Francisco and Oakland by big tech has meant that there are fewer and fewer and fewer spaces for minoritarian groups. Um, the group that Persia belongs to and is most concerned about is queer Latinx collectives. And um, Lizarraga and Cortez are able to argue that actually, even though there's this, um, this displacement of queer Latinx spaces in the Bay Area, that Persia shows a way that that culture of what they call queer gestures can have a new life and a different life online. And they coined this phrase, digital queer gestures, to point to what Persia is doing in that video. That Persia is 
importing and virtualizing all of the ways of being and movements and language um, and performance styles, all the things that queer Latinx people used to be able to find in clubs and venues around San Francisco, she imports that into the online space. And people can still find community and collectivity in, in that other space, in that virtual space. The final essay in that section, Hashtag Television by Renee Pastel, is a terrific look at hashtags relating to two TV shows, RuPaul's Drag Race and Jane the Virgin. And Renee shows that the, the kinds of official hashtags that appear on screen when you're watching TV, like for RuPaul's Drag Race, you might see hashtag Drag Race in the lower right-hand corner of the screen when you're watching it. Um, networks would like viewers to participate in official hashtags, but Renee points out that actually it's on RuPaul's Drag Race, all of the best hashtags were made by the contestants themselves, like hashtag Vlazeda, hashtag purse first. Um, and these were hashtagable phrases that the contestants uh, formulated to establish their own brands, to make them stand out from the rest. Um, and they're, hash they're the hashtags that viewers use the most when tweeting about drag race. Uh, Renee looks at a different set of hashtags with Jane the Virgin. She, she actually points out that the official hashtags of Jane the Virgin are often very political and are urging political action on the part of viewers. Like if there's an immigration storyline playing out in Jane the Virgin, uh, there'll be hashtag vote, vote, vote on the screen in all capital letters. So the text is actually announcing the kind of political action it wants viewers to take on that show. And in both cases, Renee says, um, the shows find ways to encourage not just participation from viewers, but identification in really political ways. And uh, this is one of the first essays I've read on what, what's called second screen viewing, the ways that we are used to having our phones or laptops out while watching a, a screen, like a television screen, and we're tweeting or using hashtags on Facebook at the same time that we're watching um, television play out before us. So uh, Renee is... Uh, doing a great job by analyzing the political potentials of second screen viewing in that essay. And that's something that has become more and more prevalent um, as I've experienced it myself watching Scandal and the, requ the request that, you know, you've got to tweet the show while you're watching it, um, as well as many of us political scientists who regularly tweet on election night as we're watching the returns come in. Um, so the second screen experience is an interesting one. Um, parts three and four, and Gail, you have a chapter in part three, Cancel Colbert, um, or hashtag Cancel Colbert. Um, and that section, again, is very, very prevalent in the news these days with regard to these questions of the use of Twitter by the alt-right um, and a variety of other groups um, in that regard. So if one of the two of you would talk a little bit about part three, disavowals. Yeah, Gail, maybe you could take part three and I could take uh, part four on Twitter International. That sounds great. Um, okay, part three, disavowals, is about uh, ways that 
people say no online. And what does that mean? It's about when people want to distance themselves from an ongoing hashtag campaign or when they want to disavow some kind of identity that seems to be really popular online and offline. So it's about refusals and um, identifying oneself by not by by stating that one is not a part of something. Uh, it's about not joining in. So the first essay in that is by Kyle Booten, and it's about the hashtag All Lives Matter. And Kyle does a great job using network analysis of identifying what is happening when people tweet hashtag All Lives Matter. And Kyle noticed uh, using a data science project that all lives matter was often most often appearing immediately after the hashtag black lives matter in people's tweets. So he identifies the use of all lives matter as a corrective, a disavowal of black lives matter. It's like, in other words, people say, yes, yes, yes. Black lives matter. I know that this, um, campaign against police violence against black people is happening in this country. But, but what's more important is that all lives matter. And the way that that rhetoric ends up working on Twitter is that it seems to shut down the point that black lives matter is trying to make. Um, it seems to be saying that black lives actually don't matter because, because all lives matter, because we should be colorblind, uh, because we don't see, we don't want to see race. We don't want to see racial difference. Um, so Kyle really takes on that kind, what can seem like, what can seem like inclusive rhetoric, all lives matter, and, uh, demonstrates how, um, silencing and oppositional and exclusive it is. Uh, the next essay is my own essay cancel on hashtag cancel Colbert, which was a moment when um, Stephen Colbert's uh, what looks like Stephen Colbert's shows official Twitter account tweeted out a racially insensitive joke about Asian Americans. It turned out that Colbert himself had nothing to do with that account and didn't know who, who tweeted that out. It was probably some kind of intern. Um, but the official account of his show tweeted a joke that was just the very tail end of a much longer joke that Stephen Colbert told on the show. So it sort of missed the context of a longer piece about um, it was, it was actually a joke about the Washington Redskins and how racist that sports team name is. And Col the, and Colbert's joke to end it was something like um, I'm going to start a foundation to support Orientals called Ching Chong, Ding Dong, um, Oriental, whatever. And so the, the official show account tweeted out just the Ching Chong Ding Dong part and immediately an Asian American online activist, Sui Park, and that's a pseudonym, uh, Sui Park tweeted out hashtag cancel Colbert uh, because it wasn't just that she was offended. It was that um, she felt that that move of using a racist joke, using racist humor to, to criticize racism is just a poor move. It just ends up 
reinforcing and strengthening racist discourse. So she is more critiquing the very concept of using anti-Asian racism to um, combat uh, racism against indigenous people. You know, that to her, that was a kind of doubling down uh, that she didn't agree with. And plenty of people sided with Sui Park, but plenty, plenty, plenty of people uh, really hated the cancel Colbert campaign, um, pointed out how everybody who was tweeting cancel Colbert was missing the whole point of irony and sarcasm. People were really outraged by the outrage um, in cancel Colbert. And uh, what I end up pointing out in the essay is that the cancel Colbert and anti-cancel Colbert campaigns really previewed how a lot of the November 2016 election was going to play out because what we see with the rise of Trumpism is this kind of outrage against liberal politics. Um, this sort of way that right-wingers uh, stand up and say, um, I'm outraged that liberals are expressing these ideas. Uh, I'm going to take the risk of being different from them. I'm going to perform my political outrage online all over the place. And um, we see all of those moves made in what seems like a kind of, you know, not that important online conflict around cancel Colbert, but it ended up foreshadowing a lot of moves that got made later by Trump himself, by Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, by other spokespeople for the alt-right. Um, in the third essay and the final essay in the section, hashtag no homo, Bo Ruberg looks at how many tweets about admiration for male performers, for example, dancers or singers, how many of these admiration, you know, fanish tweets by uh, what seem to be male users of Twitter contain the hashtag no homo. So why is it that when men express their fandom for other men, that they have to distance themselves from any hints that they might have homosexual, romantic, or physical attraction to these male performers. Uh, why is hashtag no homo so popular? And um, Bo demonstrates that uh, homophobia is just rampant online, even in the most casual ways, even in tweets that seem kind of funny, like it's sort of humorous that people tweet hashtag no homo, but it's also this very pervasive homophobia that goes really unnoticed in everyday social media use. Thanks. And and I, I was not fully aware of that whole movement. And, and that, that chapter, I was really kind of flummoxed and concerned that this is so prevalent in such a, as you say, kind of a nonchalant kind of way. Um, but all of these, all of these chapters in disavowals, I found to be really fascinating and helping to understand a lot of the kind of political dynamics on Twitter these days as well. The final section before we get to sort of the concluding um, essays is Twitter International. Um, and Keith, you said you would take us through some of the chapters in that section. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so the final uh, final section is called Twitter International, uh, and 
you know, one of the uh, one of the stories of the kind of the rise of of hashtag activism and, and activism on Twitter on Twitter, uh, you know, the some of the the most powerful and important stories are about the Iranian elections in 2009 and the Arab Spring in 2011. Uh, and one of the, the things that the, the book uh, writ large attempts to do is to, is to kind of bring those movements uh, and moments into a, a conversation around um, questions of social difference in the United States primarily. Uh, but at the end of the book, we we kind of move back out into the um, into the global context or into the international context, uh, and uh, rather than uh, look at look at Iran again uh, or at the Arab Spring, we have uh, authors um, looking uh, at India, uh, at the African continent, uh, and uh, uh, and at the UK. Uh, so the the first chapter in this section is by Niha Kumar, uh, and the title is "Is Twitter for Celebrities Only: A Qualitative Study of Twitter Use in India." And Niha um, uh, has a the, the chapter is based on kind of a uh, a long ethnographic project uh, where she's uh, interviewing uh, social media users. Um, mostly uh, younger people uh, in India uh, for about uh, 18 months. Uh, and one of the things that um, she uh, reveals in these, uh, 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 through this ethnography uh, is that Twitter is actually a fairly um, narrow space for broad sort of uh, democratic uh, political culture. Right, it's only uh, only a few people, uh, you know, celebrity types utilize Twitter as a, as a platform for broadcasting. Now, a lot of people uh, follow celebrities on Twitter, so a lot of people are are reading uh, what what celebrities have to say. But the kind of engagement in um, uh, political uh, kind of uh, political discourse uh, isn't. Uh, isn't happening so much on Twitter. What she's finding is that other online communities, particularly in Facebook, Telegram, and WhatsApp, um, are more likely where um, where sort of expressions of political agency and something like freedom are getting uh, articulated and expressed. And she points to the ways in which these um, these social media platforms allow a more uh, kind of defined set of parameters for, for who's inside a conversation, right? There, there are kind of levels of privacy that, that, that one can generate that, uh, that you simply don't have on Twitter. Uh, the, the next chapter uh, is by uh, Reginald Royston and Crystal Strong uh, called Re-Territorializing Twitter, African Moments 2010 to 2015. Uh, and what Reggie and, and Crystal do in this chapter uh, is they look at a couple different cases taking place on the African continent, particularly uh, uh, Ghana, uh, Nigeria, and, and a bit in, in South Africa as well. 
And one of the things that they, they focus on is that, um, uh, is that Twitter and, and hashtags more broadly are getting used um, in quite local ways to um, raise awareness about um, local um, concerns. Right? So, one, so one example is the hashtag Dumpsor, which arises to protest Ghana's um, infrastructural breakdown. Uh, and the and the need for a certain kind of uh, renewed investment uh, in infrastructure uh, in the country, uh, and then she uh, they also look at uh, a hashtag called uh, "Bring Back Our Girls" uh, that you know gained a wide prominence in the United States when uh, Mich- uh, then you know uh, First Lady Michelle Obama. Uh, brought it to you know to the attention of of uh, the a uh, U.S. public, uh, but bring back our girls. It was kind of articulated to local Nigerian activism that had uh, very grounded and um, kind of embedded forms of uh, political community uh, at uh, at their back. Right, so. So while we think perhaps of um, of some forms of uh, hashtag activism circulating quite broadly and, and uh, crossing borders in uh, uh, in in a kind of smooth way, you know, Royston and Strong are very keen to have us think very carefully about the local material context, and they also are um, adamant and I think quite compelling in, in thinking about how the social media scape, what they term the social media scape uh, in Africa is, um, is a site of innovation, of creativity, uh, of growth and transformation, uh, and not just a site for the um, sort of the passive translation of uh, you know, Silicon Valley technologies. Uh, the next uh, the next chapter is a co-authored piece by Navina Karusala, Trevor Perrier, and Niha Kumar uh, called Hashtag If Africa Was a Bar, uh, Participation on Twitter Across African Borders. Uh, and here the, the researchers look at basically a, a few days um, in 2015, when the hashtag "If Africa Was a Bar" was circulating quite widely on Twitter, uh, and they grab about um, 2,300 tweets, uh, and from that data set uh, alone, uh, start to reflect on you know what does it mean uh, to be able to look at the different ways in which. Um, people are uh, utilizing hashtag if Africa was a bar. Uh, And uh, there are kind of two notable dimensions that I think uh, uh, kind of come through on the the methodological level uh, in this chapter. Uh, One is that uh, you can see, uh, you can begin to see rather the the kind of the proliferation of of folks from uh, from different countries engaging this hashtag, uh, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, uh, as well as folks um, uh, tweeting from uh, from outside uh, the African continent. Uh, 
Uh, so you can see a, a kind of um, localized uh, expression of identity. Uh, but then on the, on the flip side of that, they're also interested in showing how this kind of research um, uh, engaging kind of larger scale data sets on Twitter uh, requires us to think about the outsider status uh, of, of researchers and that there's a, a way in which um, we, uh, as outsiders, uh, and, and the three of them are, are based in the United States, how they kind of create coherence, meaning, and effects of these hashtags um, in ways that might not necessarily be consonant with how they're um, getting articulated locally. Uh, and then the last chapter kind of uh, brings the book uh, full circle in a, in a way, this is by Kimberly McNair, and it's called Beyond Hashtags, Black Twitter and Building Solidarity Across Borders. Uh, and what McNair does in, uh, in the chapter is uh, point out something that uh, I was not at all familiar with when, uh, uh, when the, the book started, which was the kind of the transit of the hashtag Black Lives Matter um, beyond the United States. Uh, and, and across the, the African diaspora. Uh, and McNair looks in particular at the, the ways in which um, organizing against police violence uh, in the United Kingdom uh, began to articulate and, and interface with you know, organizers uh, in the Bay Area, in the United States, in Ferguson, uh, in Southern California, and elsewhere. And there's a, a way in which the uh, online organizing uh, against police violence becomes a catalyst for um, offline interactions, right? So that uh, part of the, the story that uh, Kim tells in this chapter is of uh, the organizers in uh, the UK uh, who have been organizing against uh, police violence against Black people for several decades uh, since the since the nineties. Uh, how they're actually brought on a on a tour to California uh, to meet with and interact with uh, organizers in the states and to trade stories, to get to know one another, to strategize, uh, to think about uh, what works and what doesn't. Uh, in uh, in various contexts, so it it really in in many respects uh, brings the book uh, full circle. And and I wanted to ask. I mean, this is this is a really fascinating and and complex and and deep book. Um, and I know it came out of this sort of monthly working group. Um, but as authors were writing and and you were receiving chapters and drafts of their work, I wanted to know what were you each most surprised by in terms of what the research was indicating, what you were learning from the work that your many authors were doing? Gosh, that's such a huge question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Just one thing. Um, we, we were, I think I can speak for Keith and myself when I say we were so amazingly 
impressed with what our graduate students produced, just blown away. You know, some of these authors uh, were very advanced in their graduate degrees or had even just recently graduated UC Berkeley um, with their doctorates. And they were, many of them are now already assistant professors, you know, starting their own faculty careers. But a good portion of our contributors this is their their first scholarly publication ever, you know. Uh, I mean, so many of these authors, this was the first thing they wrote that wasn't just going to be a graduate seminar paper. It was going to be a real, brand new, leading-edge scholarship for publication. And uh, that's, what, that's what we asked them to do. That's what they set out to do, and they did it. Um, what I think we love about uh, the the whole collection is just the sheer diversity of topics. Uh, you know, when we walk through, when each of us in the world um, experiences social media on a daily basis, we're basically only experiencing like 0.00001% of whatever's happening online. Um, as Marshall McLuhan says, the the uh, global telecommunications, what we call social media, makes the planet Earth into a global theater. It, it, we all perform for one another. And we all cannot catch all the performances that happen, let alone think about the significance of many of them, um, what they mean either to the people posting that content or the thousands of people who read one tweet or a series of tweets or just what it means in the world. So each of these chapters um, is really personal for each of the contributors. It's these chapters and these hashtags are how each author experiences the global theater of social media. And um, they are able to explain, you know, really delve into and analyze the many layers of meaning of each of these very unique hashtag campaigns. So I just love how many different slices and perspectives we're able to get from this, what seems like an ungraspable, unrepresentable, you know, nearly unanalyzable phenomenon like Twitter. And I mean, that's, that's one of the things that makes this book really valuable and, and really useful for many scholars in many different fields, as you both noted, you know, it brings together a, a host of different disciplinary, disciplinary viewpoints and perspectives and frameworks to think about this idea, not only of identity, but all of the ways that identity is performed is understood, particularly in the realm of social media. Um, I really, I really enjoyed reading this book, and I appreciate, appreciate you sharing it with me. I wanted to know what each of you are working on now in terms of your research. If there's more coming out of this working group, um, and also besides the University of Michigan Press, where can somebody pick up a copy of this book? Perhaps a brick and mortar store someplace, maybe in Berkeley, California. Uh, so, uh, the color of new media working group is, um, alive and well, um, uh, and, uh, Gail and I are actually, uh, about to have a conversation about our plans for, uh, 2019, 2020. Uh, so, um, keep your, keep your eyes peeled, uh, for that. 
Uh, it's been uh, sort of five years uh, of work together, uh, and it's been really quite exciting to see uh, graduate students move through the working group um, uh, as, as a kind of a place to, to uh, begin to kickstart their careers. And so part of uh, what, uh, what I know I'm excited about, about the, about the next steps in the working group, is really to see... Um, see where graduate students are at. What are what are the burning questions um, that are um, sort of animating their work, and how can an engagement uh, with um, kind of minoritarian discourses and communities uh, uh, sort of uh, be- become articulated to that? Uh, so, so there's there's that. I I will also say. Um, uh, just about where to get the book. Uh, one of the things that was really important to us was uh, not only to be able to to get the book uh, at a brick and mortar store uh, and uh, at a reasonable price, all things considered. You know, uh, University of Michigan Press was really kind to us uh, to to have a sort of a modestly priced um, paperback edition of the book. Uh, but we've also worked uh, hard and, and got some support from the University of California library system to have an uh, open access uh, edition of the book uh, that will be free and available uh, online. So when, when that's available, it's it's not quite out in the world as far as I understand. Oh, it is. But it, it, oh, is, it, is. it is. Yes, oh, terrific. I just checked today. And if uh, if anyone listening to this goes to the University of Michigan Press website and searches for hashtag identity, you will find an open access version of the book available. And I will put that also in the the blurb that goes with the New Books Network um, airing of the the podcast. So people will be able to link to it that way too. There's actually two versions available on the University of Michigan Press website. Uh, You could download it as an EPUB or you could download it as a PDF. Um, So I want to thank Abigail DeKosnick and Keith Feldman, who are the editors of Hashtag Identity, Hashtagging Race, Gender, Sexuality, and Nation, published in 2019, University of Michigan Press, also available, open access. Thank you, Gail and Keith, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lily.